Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Just and the Suffering podcast featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips, and boy, oh boy, a lot has happened since the last time I talked to you guys, so we're going to dive into everything today. As I talked about last week on the podcast, the French Open is coming up, and I was able to get a tennis guest for the first time. I'm going to be joined by Veronica Bruno from Fansided, who covers tennis for them. We're going to preview the French Open in just a bit. I also am breaking down the absolute sideshow that has become the New York Mets. I'm going to be joined by my co-editor at Mestradamus, John Coppinger. We're going to break down all the wackies in the Mets on the weekend, talk about Mickey Callaway's job status, how much blame Brody Bear Wagon should have in the Mets' current situation, and if the year is salvageable. That's a valid question, I think. We'll get into all that. Make sure you stay tuned to the end of the show for a very special summer movie preview with Jonathan Stanko, who was, in my opinion, the breakout star of the Avengers Endgame podcast. I talk about a lot of summer movies with John. We get to hear that conversation. But we'll get it all started with this week's opening tip, where I dive into the absolute unmitigated disaster that has become the New York Jets right after this. What the hell kind of ownership is this? How do you hire this guy, okay? You hire this guy that's won nothing, nothing. And then you allow him to come here and win a power struggle against the sitting GM? Whatever you think about McCagney doesn't matter. You let this guy come in. This isn't Bill Belichick here. This isn't even a guy like Andy Reid, somebody along those lines. You let this guy come in here and win a power struggle over the sitting GM? Really? All right, we are back on the Just and the Suffering podcast. You just heard the initial reaction of WFAN's Joe Beningo to the absolutely absurd news that the Jets fired general manager Mike McCagnin in May. After letting him run the entire offseason, he gets fired, along with player personnel VP Brian Heimerdinger and the search for a new GM being led by the incompetent Christopher Johnson and the interim general manager, one Adam Gase. And I've got to admit here, I was completely floored by this news when it came out. Yes, there have been rumblings about the job security of McCagnin leading up to the draft. There have been that report from Michael Lombardi of The Athletic. There have been the podcast that Tony Pauline had breaking down some issues with McCagnin and Gase. But I said, you know what? The Jets can't be this stupid. They're now in a town where the Giants are the laughingstocks where the Giants trade Odell Beckham for basically replacement players, where they drafted Daniel Jones with a sixth pick when Matt Verderan told us on the podcast that there were scouts at the Senior Bowl who said this guy was not a day-one pick. I thought just maybe, maybe the Jets were the same organization this town. I was laughing at the Giants, like all the Jet fans were. I was thinking, you know what? Wow, we're the good team. We're the model organization that is letting the GM run things and building the right way and they're going to win and all that good stuff. But here comes Chris Johnson from the top rope last week. Fire McCagnin, fire Heimerdinger just three weeks. Three weeks after the draft was over. Here's the statement Christopher Johnson let, let out there. This morning, I informed Mike that he's being relieved of his duties as general manager of the team effective immediately. Mike helped to execute the strategic vision of this organization during the last four seasons, especially during the past few months. However, I came to the decision to make a change after much thought and careful assessment of what would be in the best long-term interests of the New York Jets. I will start a search for our new general manager immediately. In the interim, 
Coach Gase will be the acting general manager. Now, this is not to say that Mike McCagney was the greatest general manager in the world. He had plenty of mistakes on his resume. Outside of the first round, he did not do a great job drafting. A lot of his picks were busts. He also did a horrendous job in free agency over the years. He threw a lot of guaranteed money at old guys when he first got here. Great, they won 10 games in 2015. They didn't make the playoffs, and then they became a disaster afterwards. Last year's free agent hall, not great. Remember Isaiah Crowell? Remember Terrell Pryor? Remember Tremaine Johnson? Remember uh, Spencer Long? All those guys turn out to be disasters. But he has done some good things. He drafted Jamal Adams, who's turned out to be a star. He made the trade to get Sam Darnold. And that trade could be the key for the Jets' future here. All that said, mixed bag for McCagnan, but he did have a solid offseason. He got Le'Veon Bell here. He got C.J. Mosley in here. In the meantime, my question is this. How the hell did Adam Gase get to run him out of town? Gase has been on the Jets' staff for four months. Four. And he is lucky he's got a job after being run out of Miami. Nobody else was interested in hiring him as a head coach. Only the Jets. At his press conference, way back in January, after he got hired, Adam Gase said that he did not want personnel control and was just happy to be here coaching the players and letting McCagnin pick the players for him. How long did that last? That lasted exactly four months. In case you forgot, Gase does not have a, the world's greatest resume. Adam Gase, as a head coach, went 23-25 and 25 with the Dolphins. He made the playoffs once in his first year, lost in the first round, and ran guys like Jay Ajayi, Jarvis Landry, and Indominus Sue out of Miami because they did not fit his vision and his style. That's the guy. That is the man that the Jets said, you know what? That's the guy we want leading our team. That's the guy whose vision we should trust. Really? Adam Gase is not Bill Belichick. He's not Andy Reid. He's not Tom Coughlin. I was not even Mike McCarthy. That resume of 23 and 25 with one playoff appearance, that warrants total control of football operations? Really? And you know he is thrilled to have the power again because as soon as he got the interim job, traded Darren Lee away for a sixth-round pick. No one is saying Darren Lee is the greatest thing since sliced bread, but he couldn't wait hours to make his first move. And since then, he's fired scouts. He cut a tight end. He signed a punter he had in Miami. Trust me, this next GM, it's going to be an Adam Gase-approved GM. He can say all he wants about how I'm just coaching the team. The GM is going to pick the players. B.S. He is in control of everything right now. And another thing, as we talked about, how is he going to fit with Le'Veon Bell, who he reportedly did not want because the Jets are going to overpay him? Guess what? Le'Veon Bell's here. He's not going anywhere. The Jets are not going to be able to trade him because Adam Gase doesn't want him. They, got, they would have to do what the Giants did with Beckham and take a $25 million salary cap hit to move on, which is extremely dumb. And Bell's already taken the high road. He said, you know what? I came here to win. I'm working out all that jazz. 
How's that going to work when they get into their first losing streak during the season? And Bell has a fumble. How's that going to happen? Now, don't get me wrong. The issue here is the timing of this. Not that McCagden shouldn't have been fired. His resume was not great. If the Jets were not happy with him, why didn't you fire in December when you let Todd Bowles walk out the door? You should have sent them both on their way, had a complete reset, and then hired your GM, and maybe you want Adam Gaze hire him then, and then the two of them work together to build the team they want. Maybe he doesn't bring Le'Veon Bell here. Okay. But you know what? You do it in January, do a complete reset, and you can just build a vision together. And maybe we don't agree that Adam Gase is the right fit, but you give him the whole offseason to build a team the way he wants. Maybe you get lucky and win. Instead, they not only let Mike McCagden help pick the coach who got him fired, they let him spend over $125 million in guaranteed money for free agency. They let him make all the draft picks before they fired him. So he completely ran the offseason Picked a bunch of players apparently Adam Gase did not want. And now he's gone. What confident organization does this? Name me one. You can't. The fact that the Jets let a mediocre coach. He should not have got this job to begin with. He comes in here four months later. He's winning a power struggle with the general manager. And gets the general manager fired. Complete BS. The Jets rewarded him for throwing a temper tantrum. Because he didn't get his way. When he said his press conference again. I want to coach. No. I did not ask for personnel control in Miami. They gave it to me. They rewarded that bad behavior with his own general manager. And top this all off. The Jets lied to the media for weeks. There were reports out there for a while now. That there were issues with McCagney and Gase. But everyone came out and said. Nope. Nothing's wrong here. Just normal disagreements in a work environment. Adam Gase himself stood up in the media and lied to everybody's faces. This is what he said on Friday before McCagney got fired. Unless I say it, it's really irrelevant to me. I don't know who who decides that gets to put that stuff out there. It kind of pisses me off a little bit because we have discussions on everything, and that's that's our job. We have to do, we have to work through so much stuff, and that's what we got to do. And you know that's all we've done. Since we've been here, since we started, we just constantly were in communication. Whether he's coming out of my office or I'm going to his office, that's all we're trying to do is just trying to make sure that we're on the same page all the time and making sure that we're trying to put this thing together as well as we can you, in a shorter period of time. Do you view the differences of opinion as healthy? Yeah, if it wasn't, I mean, what are we doing this for? I mean, if everybody just agreed on everything, it'd be boring. I mean, we need to have a little excitement every once in a while. Well, the good thing is I don't read much because I think a lot of this stuff is crap, so... You know what, Adam? You're full of crap. I'm sorry. You stood there and lied to the media saying that, you know what? I'm pissed. I'm with Mike McCagney. And then days later, he's gone. The Jets had two options to handle this McCagney situation. The first one I mentioned a while ago is that in January when they fired Todd Bowles, they fired Mike McCagney to start clean. Didn't take that road. Option two, you let him hire Gase. If you see it as an issue... You sit the two of them down and say, look, play nice. We hired you guys to run this team. You're going to run this team, and you're going to deal with your issues as professional adults. And if it doesn't work, we're going to evaluate at the end of the season. But nope. They decided to reward the scumbag behavior from Adam Gase, give him his way, and that is terrifying for this fan base. Dave Gelman's over there in uh, 
East Rutherford doing cartwheels because the Giants are no longer the biggest circus in town again. That's the Jets. And Gelman is no saint. Gelman has done a lot of stupid things as Giant GM, but right now he is doing cartwheels and handstands and laughing about the fact that no one's talking about how bad the Giants being run anymore. All this does now is puts a massive target at Adam Gase. He has to win right now, and he has to turn Sam Darnold into a superstar. Because otherwise, you're going to waste this guy's prime, and they're going to have the Jets wander through the Valley Darkness again after they spent 50 years trying to get another quarterback. And the Jets have no one to blame for this but themselves. It's hard to find owners in this town that are worse than the Wilpons, or worse than James Dolan. But the Johnsons just remind everybody how dumb they have been running this football team. And let me make one thing clear. This is very important that they get this right. And they actually behave like a competent franchise and get the right GM in here who is not afraid to say no to Adam Gase and do what he wants. Because let's make one thing clear. The worst case scenario for the Jets is that Sam Darnold has a Matthew Stafford-like career. And Stafford has been a very productive player. He's had a lot of good years. He's been to a bunch of Pro Bowls. But he has not won a thing because the organization around him is in a complete dumpster fire that cannot surround him with the right personnel or coaching staff. If Sam Darnold turns into Matthew Stafford, we will come right to this moment and see that is why the Jets wasted the prime of an elite quarterback. That cannot happen. All right, up next, we're going to talk a little tennis with Veronica Bruno from Fansided right after this. All right, we are back on the Just and the Suffering podcast. That call you just heard was Rafael Nadal winning his record 11th French Open title last year. And people who listen to the podcast know I'm a big tennis fan. I have not had a chance to talk tennis with anybody before, but... Cross off the bucket list. I am on the live me today. Fansides chief tennis correspondent, Veronica Bruno. Veronica, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Before we dive into everything, can you give the listeners a little bit of, back, a little bit of your background to sport tennis? Sure. Um, well, I actually was a ball girl for uh, Chris Everett way back when at the Virginia Slims when I was um, a little, so I've been following tennis all my life, um, and I write about it on Fansided, and I also do uh, editorials on Tennis World Magazine as well. Um, so I'm a lifelong fan, and uh, I love the sport. I play the sport, and I'm very excited that uh, French Open is upon us. I'm very excited as well, and for people who are not too familiar with tennis, that the people these majors are played on different surfaces. Obviously, Australian U.S. Open are on hard courts. Wimbledon is on grass, but the French Open is on clay. So can you explain to everybody what the difference is between playing on clay as opposed to like a hard court? Sure. Uh, well, clay is uh, is quite different. Um, you know, you've got the uh, French Open and Wimbledon, which are really, um, they're completely unique from everything else. Um, so clay courts, they're more in common where you see in like South America and Europe. So you see players like Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal doing really well. They've grown up on the surface. They know the surface. Um, the courts that they're using at the French Open are the orange courts, which is actually quite distinct from what you see with the green courts in America. 
And, um, you know, the ball spins much faster. It's uh, harder to return on uh, clay courts. Um, you know, it favors players who are more defensive, like Rafael Nadal, um, more energetic players. You know, you slide into the ball um, as opposed to, you know, like a Federer who will stop and prepare, you know, more of a perfectionist on the grass court. Uh, the ball ba- bounces higher. Um, it's uh, often slower as well. And it's harder for serve-dominant players like John Isner, like Federer, um, so it's its own uh, unique thing, and it's um, you know the, the risk factor is much higher on clay courts. It takes a lot more getting used to, which is why it's um, you know very risky for a player, say a, a Federer, to be going back onto clay after being absent for three years. Yeah. It puts different pressures on you on your thigh and calf muscles as well. Yeah, that's definitely something we're getting into with the men's side. We'll start on the women's side first because. A lot of interesting storylines there. We'll start with Naomi Osaka. She's won two straight Grand Slams, one both on hard courts. Now she's split with her coach after winning the Australian Open, and she's dealing with some injury issues. Do you think that will impact her ability to win here at Roland Garros? Well, she's definitely um, not as confident, I would say, as she was last year. Um, she had her longtime coach, Sasha Bejan, who was uh, the former hitting partner for Serena Williams. So she uh, got rid of him right after her last Grand Slam win at the Australian Open. So she has she had a very difficult hardcore season after the Australian Open, um, but she's actually been doing better uh, during the clay court season. You know, she made it to two quarterfinals um, in Italy and in Madrid. She made it to the semis at Stuttgart. So she's definitely having a better start than she did uh, right after uh, Australian Open. So she's a little bit in better shape, but she's, Definitely not a slam dunk from the French Open this year. Yeah, she's definitely somebody I don't think is going to do a super great here. Compared to somebody like Simona Halep, who was defending champ, won last year, won, broke through here. So what do you think of her chances to repeat at the French? Well, Halep hasn't won a, a, a title this year. So, um, you know, Naomi Osaka's got a little bit more to to um, bank on than, uh, let's say, a Halep. But... Um, you know, she's she had her breakthrough here, so she is coming in as a defender, and she is, um, you know, she is confident that she's going to get a second title. You know, a lot of people wrote her off uh, when she won her first title that that she wasn't going to be able to do it. So she she did that, and um, you know, she's been playing consistent, but she doesn't have um, her her big coach, which helped her win the title last year. Cahill is not in her camp now, so she's also got. Um, you know, there's some questions about her coaching going into the French Open this year as well. So she's got that same issue going on. And she's only played two clay tournaments, so she's not coming in with a lot of practice. Yeah, somebody else not coming in with a lot of practice, Serena Williams, who has withdrawn from three straight events with a knee injury, and she's had very little prep on the clay court. So do you think we're setting up here for an early exit from Serena? I don't know. I mean, Serena is really hard to predict. Um, you know, it's best with any of the the great players to never write them off. Um, she has had a very light schedule this year, for sure. But, you know, there is something to be said about going into a Grand Slam that, you know, all the best players of all time, only they really have the mindset to, to hold their own in a Grand Slam final. You know, Serena didn't have a very good schedule last year, but she still made it to the final at Wimbledon. So, you know, she has 
it's best never ever to write her off. Um, I don't see her having the same kind of strength that she did last year, but um, you know she does come alive during Grand Slam, so she's not the favorite. But I would not, I wouldn't bet that she'll go out early. But you know, you never know. She's she's total, total the um, it's totally up in the air how she's going to do one way or the other. Yeah, she's definitely somebody I'm keeping an eye on. The other one I think is going to make a big run this term is Sloane Stevens because she's been knocking on the door of the French for a while now. She got to the final last year and ended up losing to Simona Halep. Do you think she can break through here and win her second slam? Well, there's something to be said about being in a Grand Slam final. You know, to have that experience, it grounds you. It makes you less nervous the second time you go into a Grand Slam final. So she has that experience. Um, you know, the women's draw is really really open now. I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of how, like, the PGA was right after uh, the dominance of Ty- Tiger Woods. I mean, he won this year the Masters, but, you know, we can all agree that he was he's not what he was when he was winning everything all the time. Um, so the women's draw is really open, and Sloane Stevens has as good of a chance as anyone, and she made it to the semifinals in Madrid going against Kiki Bertens, who is, like, the it woman right now in tennis. Um, with a recent win. So, I mean, but she's looking confident. Uh, she's um, happy, newly engaged. You know, she's just, uh, she just seems cool and confident going into the French. And I think she's definitely one of the big contenders for the title this year. Yeah, she is going to be a big contender. You mentioned Kiki Bertans a second ago. Who are some of these other contenders we should be watching for on the women's side? Well, um, I would say Petra Kvitova is uh, definitely one of my favorites uh, to win. Um, she is, she's only won two Grand Slam titles, and they were on grass. However, in the last couple of years, you know, she's been doing so well on clay, and she's the only woman that has won two titles this year. I mean, everybody else has won one title. So she's got a lot of confidence with that. Um, she did really well at Stuttgart, so she, and that was one of her titles. Um, she made the Grand Slam final at Australia. Uh, she's, you know, last year she had the most singles titles on the WTA tour. She is still very hungry for a another Grand Slam title. She keeps getting close. Um, you know, she's she's always going to be a factor, and she's most definitely one of the favorites. And of course, if she wins, I mean, it's such a Cinderella story with being attacked in her home and and operation on her on her hitting hand. So, I mean, she's always got the court in her favor whenever she plays. So, you know, the others who are a factor are, um, you know, Belinda Bencic, who uh, won the Hoffman Cup with uh, Roger Federer mixed doubles um, event earlier this year. Uh, she hasn't won a title, but she got to the semis in Madrid, and she has been, uh, you know, progressing well in all her tournaments. Uh, Angelique Kerber is always a factor. Um, you know, she's looking for that career grand slam. She got to the quarters in Stuttgart. She hasn't been as strong as she was at the beginning of the year, but she certainly is um, never somebody to um, to dismiss. So she's she's a big factor as well. Um, and then Arena Sabalenka, uh, still looking for a title this year. She is playing in a clay tournament right now in Strasbourg, so she, she's looking really good as well. Yeah, there's a lot of names to watch on women's. I feel like it's ve- it's always very wide open on that, and the men's side not so much because Rafael Nadal. <laughs> right. <laughs> Rafael Nadal is the king of clay. He won 11 French Open titles. He just won in Italy over the weekend, so he's coming in in rare form. Who do you think is the biggest threat to him on clay right now? Uh, I, would, I would have said Djokovic um, uh, until that final where Nadal bageled him. And Djokovic, I mean, remember, 
Last year, Djokovic did well on clay, and, you know, he is he's looking strong again. However, there are some questions as to how easily Nadal was able to beat him in that final. But, you know, he has he has won, um, so he and he's looking for to be the only one to hold all four titles at the same time and to do it a second time around. So, I mean, it's you know, there's a lot riding on him. I mean, he just had his birthday. He's now 32. So he just turned 32 uh, yesterday, and he's already been in two clay finals. So, I mean, if, if I were to pick somebody who's going to be um, a rival to Nadal, it would most certainly be Novak Djokovic. But I would put that with, like, a tiny question mark that it's not sure that um, he's the front runner. Yeah, I still make the dollar front runner, but Djokovic has always been my guy. I've liked him since he came on the tour back in like the mid two thousands. I always thought he had potential there. And first time on the French, it was such a big deal for him. He completes the Novak Slam, and then he sort of goes in this funk and doesn't win much for two years. Now he's won three in a row. So like, what do you make of the turnaround that Djokovic basically dominated, fell off the map, and then came back again? He's now back on top of the sport. Clearly, the competition between the big three is. Phenomenal. I mean, we're living in the golden age of tennis. I mean, there's just no question about that. With you know Serena on the women's side and and uh, Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic. I mean, you would have counted Andy Murray in there, but you know since he has got he's left, and you know with just three titles, you can't really count that as like the big four anymore because those three guys really just stand apart. I think Djokovic. Um, you know, Djokovic is kind of different than how he was when he was younger. I mean, Nadal and Federer kind of have consistently the same in terms of their personality and, and their mark on the sport. But Djokovic, you know, he was sort of seen as more like impetuous when he was younger, and now he's more more of like a statesman of the sport as well. And, um, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, it's, it's, it's captivating. I mean, whenever one of these guys plays, I mean, there's nobody that can even come close. They've got like this stranglehold on tennis, on the Grand Slam, and very few people can can um, deal with the pressure of being in a Grand Slam final like these guys can. I mean, you see, like, Marin Cilic, when he played uh, Federer in the Wimbledon final, I mean, he had a mental breakdown in the middle of it. Like, the in, the pressure is enormous to be in one of these Grand Slam finals. And these guys, you know, we're so used to them handling it like it's nothing, but, you know, we forget the kind of pressure that it does entail. And I think Djokovic is, um, it's amazing. I mean, and now he's being coached by his brother. So he's not even, you know, he went back to Baja and now he's, he is, um, has a new coach as well. And it's his brother. And, and he just, and he got into another final with his brother coaching. So, I mean, he's still doing well no matter what. Yeah. He's definitely the number two on my top power rankings here in, in the French behind Nadal. So, the other interesting fact here, the third member of the big three, Roger Federer, coming back to the French Open for the first time since 2015, made a deep run in Madrid in one of the tune-up events. We lost to Dominic Thiem. So what do you think we expect out of Federer here after having such a long layoff from playing on clay? You can't really count him out. I mean, that's obvious. I mean, every a lot of – I could count you so many headlines – about him having to retire, you know, until he came back two years ago. So um, we forget that Federer actually owns 11 clay titles. And during the time of um, when he was playing clay more regularly, he was known as one of the better clay court players. It's not his preferred surface, and it's his least successful, but, uh, you know, he's made 26 uh, clay finals. He made. He got to the quarters in Italy and Madrid, and this is a guy who hasn't really been playing on clay for three years and just started 
thinking about it last December. So, you know, he's he's another person. I mean, when he decides to enter a tournament, you know, the kind of confidence and the, the all-around game that he has will just have him progress and do well in a tournament no matter what. So he's, you can't count him out, and he owns a, a, a French Open title in, in 2009. So he's always going to be a factor, and he's definitely, most certainly, one of the favorites, for sure. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't put him above... Uh, obviously, Nadal, who's going for a nice baker's dozen, and we all know he's got all the ingredients. So, you know, between him and Djokovic, it's really those, it's those two guys who are going for um, who are the favorites. But you know, Federer is just—you never know. Sometimes he does really well when people um, discount him. You know, when, when uh, he's not—he's uh, not the favorite, and he's—he's—you uh, know—you never know. I mean, sometimes he kind of likes being the underdog, and he thrives as the underdog. So. You do, You never know how he's going to do in in that um, position. He could be a, a surprise factor in the final. I mean, we forget that the person that he lost in the finals to was was Nadal for the most part. I mean, he's made several finals at the French, so he certainly has the experience. Yeah, he does. And one thing that people are not realizing with him, I think, is he's going to have no pressure on him because he's not defending any rankings points on clay whatsoever. So he doesn't have any pressure of, oh, I have to get to the quarterfinals to maintain my ranking. He can do whatever he wants and make a deep run and just make a name for himself again on the surface. He actually may end up being in a better position ATP rankings-wise than Nadal, who's got a lot of points to defend and is losing those points. So, um, you know, will Federer overtake... uh, Djokovic, probably not. I mean, Djokovic has so many points um, ahead of both of them. But, you know, he, Federer could wind up being number two at the end of the clay court tournament, at the, at the end of the clay court season without, with even Nadal winning the French Open. So he could enter um, grass court season being the number two in the world. So, you know, you, he's, he's looking good no matter what. Even if he loses the French Open, he's going to come out of this uh, with a lot of strength and having progressed better than people thought he was. Yeah, he, he's going to be a factor for sure. Another guy is a factor is last year's uh, runner-up Dominic Thiem, who I think might be the best clay court player in the world, not named Nadal or Djokovic. So what do you think about his chances this year of trying to win a major here? Well, he went out early in Rome. So if that hadn't happened, I would have said he probably had the greatest chance. Um, and he also went out early in Monte Carlo. So he won Barcelona and He's one of the few guys on the tour who has two titles. So you've got um, uh, Djokovic with two titles, Federer with two titles, and Dominic Thiem with two titles. So those are your guys who have um, done really well. Everybody else is—it's just—it's an open draw. You know, they've all got everyone else's single titleists this year, including Nadal, who seemed really relieved to have won, to have gotten a title on the board this year. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, Team is is. You, you want him to win in many respects because he is the best clay court player besides Nadal. And, you know, he, he got to the final last year, and he's kind of like that middle layer of ATP players who just have been hurt the most by um, the stranglehold that the big three have on the Grand Slam. You know, like they get so close, and then, you know, uh, once they get to the final, it's just not going to happen. And that's got to be very, very frustrating for a player at that level because these are the best in the world. And, um, you know, it's been a long time coming. And 
I could see him winning it, but, you know, again, if it wasn't, if Nadal and Djokovic weren't there, we'd be talking about Dominic Team as the French Open winner, but they're there. So he could very much, well, not even make the final. But he's, he's, got, a be- he's got a better chance than most if it weren't for Nadal and, and Djokovic. Yeah, I think he's going to be a factor, as always, at, at the Clay Corn event. So, who are some other guys you could think of that might make deep runs in Paris? Because obviously, Sasha Zverev's and a guy's been floating around the top five for a couple of years now and hasn't broken through at a slam yet. You always have Nick Kyrgios, who's like an enigma with all the talent in the world, but no heads game to try and win these slams. So, who are some of these other players you think can make deep runs at the French? Well, uh, Alexander Zverev is a very sad case at the moment because, you know, he made the quarters last year, I believe, at the French Open, and it, it really is just a it's a mental game. And you would have thought with the new coach, with Yvonne Lendl uh, coaching him, that he would have made the kind of strides that, say, Andy Murray made with, with Lendl as a coach. But it, this year has just been nothing but disappointment with the with the German player. Um, I would say Stefano Tsitsipas is like a big factor right now. He's definitely, um, besides Dominic team, he's the one I think that could progress better than anybody. And he's certainly, he's already beaten Novak Djokovic. He's beaten Nadal. He's beaten Federer. I mean, he's very comfortable being the big three at a grand slam level. That's a whole other factor. Um, Kami Shikori is doing well. He's kind of like floating under the radar. He's in the top 10 again. He's, um, you know, he started getting his comeback, last year during the clay court season and he's getting you know he's he's just one of those surprise factors he could come out of nowhere and all of a sudden you see him in the last couple of matches um juan martin del potro is most certainly a factor he nobody fights like he does i mean he's had so many surgeries and he's still battling it out with the best of them and he is a grand slam winner so you know he may only have one grand slam but in this day and age that's a miracle yeah, it absolutely is. So a lot of these guys are going to be interesting. So if you had to make some picks today, who would you pick to win for both the men and the women? I would, I mean, obviously I'm going to say Rafael Nadal. I mean, there's just no question that he is, you know, I would have said at the beginning of the clay court season that he didn't look as comfortable. And surprisingly, he was defending his clay court play because he didn't win a title until Rome. Um, however, he was amazing um, during the Rome Open, and he showed the – he was at the same level that he was last year. I mean, he didn't dominate the entire clay court season, so he is coming with less confidence, but he's 100% fit, and 100% fit Nadal is almost unstoppable to his, you know, dozen titles at Roland Garros. Um, I think right behind him is Novak Djokovic, but I think Nadal is just so above everybody else in terms of winning the title. He certainly is um, uh, the favorite by a mile. For the women, I it's just um, oh, it's such an open open draw. I mean, it's so hard to predict who is going to do well. Um, I think Halep probably has the, even though she has not won a title this year, I think she has the um, greatest chance because she made the final last year and because she is so, she does so well on clay. I think that she's probably got the biggest chance, but 
she certainly is not the favorite by a mile. Um, I would say by a hair. <laughs> um, I would put Kiki Bertend right behind her, if not equal to her, um, who won Madrid. And uh, Petra Kvitova. I think those three women are the, you know, they'll be duking it out. And it's, it's any woman's game. Yeah, and the French Open begins on Sunday, so that's going to be a lot of fun over the next two weeks. Veronica Bruno, thanks for all the time today. Before I let you go, do you all everybody know how to follow you on social media and some of the stuff you're up to? Sure, yeah. Um, you can uh, find me on Twitter, uh, Veronica Bruno, Veronica E. Bruno, and I'm also on Instagram, same thing, Veronica Bruno Official, and I'm always uh, tweeting, and uh, you know I'll be following the French Open, and uh, I've... Uh, I've also got one of my essays is being published next month in the Harvard Summer Review. So it's not tennis-related. It's an essay I wrote um, about World War II, uh, totally separate, but that's also being published next month. All right, cool. Definitely check that out, Veronica. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Thanks for having me. All right, and there you have it. That is Veronica Bruno from Fanside talking all about the French Open. That begins on Sunday coverage you can get on ESPN, Tennis Channel, and NBC. Up next, we're going to dive into the Met debacle with John Coppinger, a.k.a. Metzterdamas, right after this. And then pitch to complete game to win game five. That's a fair ball. Cano didn't run, and they will get the easy double play. The throw on to first. Cano never left the batter's box. All right, we are back on the Just End Suffering podcast. That call is heard the second time over the weekend that Robinson Cano did not run out of ground ball, courtesy of SNY's Gary Cohen. Joining me right now is somebody who I work with at the Sports Daily, at the Metzardamas blog. The Metzardamas himself, the first ever guest on this podcast, John Coppinger, is back with us. John, welcome. How are you? It is a pleasure to be here, as always. Thank you for uh, for having me. Not a problem. So, obviously, we just heard that this team... I don't know. What is going on with this team? I feel like they just literally are going down the drain again. It's We haven't even hit Memorial Day yet. Yeah, it's, it's disappointing because uh, you expected, I think we all expected this team to not go through the same kind of funk they did last June when they went 5-21. and 21. And certainly we didn't expect it when uh, they were in this stretch of the schedule with the Nationals, in Washington, losing two or three, getting swept by the Marlins. You know that that this is supposed to be the part of the schedule where they made up ground in, and then uh, the, the Marlins made the Mets look very very tame with uh, two great pitching performances, and then the one time the Mets did hit, Jace, uh, Jacob Degrom was awful. So uh, it uh, you know, and when and when a team looks lifeless. It makes uh, it makes uh, the, the alarm bells go off, and I, they, they hit those buzz, buzzwords, you know, listless, lifeless, and that comes back to the manager. And uh, when the manager gets tagged with something like that, that's not a good sign. And I think that's why the job security uh, rumors were bubbling up, and uh, and then everything snowballed on them. Yeah, everything has snowballed. I mean, Monday was bizarre. We we'll go through everything from Monday, but we'll start off with the fact that Brody Van Wagen goes out to this press conference says. Mickey Calway is safe for the foreseeable future. Like, what does that exactly mean? Because they didn't. Because they asked him for clarification, he didn't give any. Oh, of course, it's <laughs> it's uh, it's vague speak. It's uh, it's people not wanting to uh, lock themselves into anything because they know that uh, the media is taking notes. They know that things like that are going to come back to him. So he's not going to say Mickey Mickey has the season, and then if they decide to axe him in June, 
then they'll come back. And uh, you, you never want to be known as somebody who goes back on his word uh, in this town or any town or in this business or any business. You never want to be known like that. So, of course, it, it's vague speak, and uh, it's frustrating. It's frustrating for the uh, for the fans because who knows what the foreseeable future means. That could mean Mickey gets the season. That could mean Mickey gets three weeks. I, I don't know if it much matters at this point because I think if the Mets are going to turn it around, they're going to turn it around from within that clubhouse, and I think players that aren't performing that were expected to perform, like, like Cano and Ramos and even DeGrom to an extent, I think they're going to have to start performing, and I think that's really the best way and maybe the only way that this season turns around. Yeah, I mean, there's so much going wrong. I mean, is it really all his fault? Because I don't think so. I mean, he's not a great manager by any means, but, like, just watching this team day in, day out, you just sort of know that, like, you know what? Like, he's making mistakes, but it's not him. No, I don't think it's I don't think it's him. I don't think he's the. I mean, I agree with you. I don't think he's the greatest manager in the world. And I think if he does get the season, that's going to be it. And Brody's going to bring him in his own person to manage. But you know, we live in an age now as baseball fans where the general managers have taken so much more control over the day to day operations of a baseball team, and yet they're still able to use the managers as scapegoats when they need it, when, when the managers don't execute the vision of the front office. And I think with managers now, the only way you really deserve to get fired midseason is if you lose the room. And that's the question I think the Mets need to answer, and I think they're probably going to answer it in the next couple of weeks, is has Mickey lost the room? Can you turn around and defend Robinson Cano for not hustling on two plays in a weekend on one hand and then turn around and make a snotty comment about Jacob DeGrom not getting his, uh, his personal catcher saying, well, nobody's in a position to demand anything now. Can you do both and still be seen as consistent? I think that's the question that I would ask about Callaway. But other than that, yeah, Brody put together this roster, and a lot of the – acquisitions that Brody made have not been performing up to standard. So, yeah, I think Brody deserves the lion's share of this. I'm not sure what he can do to patch things up outside of going and getting a guy like Craig Kimbrell for the bullpen. But, uh, yeah, Brody, uh, Brody has to wear one with this as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, speaking of Brody, I mean, back at the beginning of the season, he said this. Not be shy about wanting to be to be the best, and I, I fully expect us to be uh, – to be competitive and to be a, to be a winning team. And uh, our goal is to win a championship, and it starts with the division. So come get us. Yeah, so back at the beginning of the season, Mike Bogdano's famous last words, he says, come get us. And then yesterday, I mean Monday at his press conference, he says they're going to co- also going to continue making improvements like purchasing Hector Santiago's contract. I mean, how far have we fallen here with Brody? I mean, this is just a disaster. Well, yeah, when you say something like come get us, you got to expect the bullseye to be on you. So and 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 then to say, well, we we have the resources to do what we want, basically, and then the best you can do is bring up Hector Santiago when there's players that are readily available out there. Then yeah, you're you're going to get that bullseye on you uh, tenfold. So uh, and and again, it, it's going to make people wonder eventually: Is Brody a con man? 
I don't think Brody's a con man. I think that, uh, and I've long thought that any general manager is uh, is going to uh, suffer. I don't want to say meddling, but yeah, I'll say meddling from ownership. I think every general manager is going to have to deal with that. I think they're going to have to navigate that. But we we're still conditioned as a fan base to blame the manager, and when the manager falls, then we blame the general manager. So, uh, so yeah, ownership, uh, an ownership can't be fired. So I, I think Met fans are starting to realize that this is an ownership problem, but they're also starting to realize that there's nothing that anybody can do about getting the owners out if they don't want to sell. So guess what? We're stuck with blaming the general manager. We're stuck with blaming the manager. Yeah, as far as general manager is concerned, I mean, yes, his trade for J.D. Davis has looked good, and Mickey should be playing him more. That's besides the point, but like, some of these trades he made are just mind-boggling. I mean, giving up three prospects or six weeks of key on Brosnan was bad, but this Robinson Cano trade is turning into a disaster because entering last night, he's hitting 250, three homers, 13 RBIs, and a 681 OPS. He's on the roster another four years at $20 million per, and they gave up Jared Kalenic in that deal. Might turn out to be the next Mike Trout, right? He's dominating in the minor leagues. So, like, mm-hmm. how much more of a disaster can this deal get for this team? Well, I think, uh, excuse me, I think once uh, Kellenic comes up and becomes an all-star, then, yeah, you're going to see that deal become uh, become a big disaster. I was never a fan of the deal, but I at least thought that we could get, the, the Mets could get two good years out of Robinson Cano. I mean, you know, listen, the not hustling thing, I think that anybody that's shocked by that hasn't watched baseball the last 15 years because this has been on Cano's resume for a long time. He's always... If it's not a lack of hustle, it's just I'm going to make everything look smooth and it just looks worse than it actually is. But, yeah, this is uh, – you know, Yankee fans got tired of Cano's act near the end. So, so yeah, I don't think anybody be, should be surprised by that. I think the real problem with Cano is that he's hitting 250 and not 290. I think that's a huge problem. And then when you talk about the centerpiece of this deal being a relief pitcher – I think that that makes it even more tenuous. I never liked that they put uh, so many resources. They used so many chips to get a reliever. Yes, a ninth inning person, a ninth inning pitcher is important, but if you're not hitting and the ninth inning guy can't get in the game, then what use is he? And that's you know, another reason why a Craig Kimbrell signing would have made more sense. And then they could have used the ch- chips like Kellenick and Dunn to maybe get JT Real Muto to play catcher. It probably would have made more sense in hindsight, and a lot of people uh, had uh, had seen that coming from the beginning. So, I, it's, uh, so yeah, I think that uh, the, the deal could become a, a huge, huge disaster. And what, what kills me about it is that the Mets themselves have had so many examples of trades like this not working out. From Nolan Ryan to Scott Casimir, and now they, they risk that again. They never learn from their mistakes, and that's uh, and I, I know you wanted to talk about the articles by uh, Ken Rosenthal and Jeff Passan, but, and that's, but that's been their theme in these articles is that they never learn from their mistakes. No, they certainly do not. Before we get to that, I want to mm-hmm. go back to that JT Real Muto thing you brought up because I remember back in December when the rumors were swirling that like they said that the Marlins were asking for Conforto, they're asking for Rosario, but Part of me, and this is something I would have said all the time, I would have traded them Brandon Nimmo if that was what it would have taken to get the deal done. It was like Nimmo and Andres Jimenez plus. 
Because I feel like they overrated Brandon Nimmo after one good year, and now, like, he's sort of falling back to earth, and now we've seen Wilson Ramos has been a disaster for the Mets. He hasn't hit at all, and JT Ramiro is doing good things in Philly. So, like, I don't get why, like, you see with this team that the young guys are the ones that are performing, and they keep bringing in all these older veterans, giving them playing time, and then none of them are actually doing anything. Yeah, and it's, I think the Mets are allergic to bringing in guys that are entering their prime or in their prime, and I don't understand it. And, uh, and yeah, they, they, the Marlins asked for the world for Real Muto, and, and they were ridiculous from the start, but you've got to know, you had to know that the price was going to come down eventually. And, and when you look at what the Marlins actually got, yeah, they got a, uh, they got a very good pitching prospect, and they got Alfaro. But uh, I don't even know if you could have put the value of what they got on the level of the value that they would have had with, say, Brandon Nimmo, who was an established major leaguer, which the Marlins didn't get for Real Muto, and then Andres Jimenez and whatever other prospects they wanted. So I think the price could have even come down, but uh, the Mets didn't want to be involved because they thought they were smarter than everybody and just said, all right, we're going to go get Wilson Ramos. And, uh, you know, we talked about it yesterday. I had a talk about it yesterday on my own podcast that, uh, that maybe the Mets, you know, the Mets did go after Yasmani Grandal, which would have been a very good move. Grandal turned out their four-year offer. What would have happened if they had gone harder after Grandal, offered him a little more money? And I say this not knowing Grandal's stats, but I, he certainly would have been better offensively and certainly defensively than uh, Ramos as well. Yeah, he would have been for sure. And go back to our veterans again. The one guy in this team who is driving me insane is Todd Frazier because he comes, he gets hurt at the beginning of the year. J.D. Davis gets in at third. He plays well. And then as soon as Todd Frazier comes back, he gets handed the job and he's done nothing. And then last night, off a two-hit game, starting at third, batting fifth, does nothing again. J.D. Davis comes off the bench, hits a homer. I mean, what do we have to do to get Todd Frazier's playing time reduced on this team? Uh, probably tie him up and put him on a raft in the Atlantic Ocean and push. That might be the, that might be the only way. And Frazier is the embodiment of, of what I hate about the Mets and what I've hated about the Mets for the past few years. Paying guys and overpaying guys for clubhouse influence and leadership. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that clubhouse chemistry and locker room presence isn't important. But I will tell you that you shouldn't go out and pay $8 million, $10 million a year for that. That happens organically within a room, and I think the Mets clubhouse would have been just fine without Todd Frazier, because when you take his bat, his 205 batting average, and put it in that lineup, it's an anchor. And we all knew that Frazier's, uh, after Frazier's first two years, he hasn't hit particularly well. So what else were the Mets paying for? They're paying for clubhouse influence. And then Frazier turns around and, and rekindles a feud with Adam Eaton, a three-year-old stupid feud on the same day that Brody has this press conference about Mickey Calloway and makes the Yoanna Cespedes announcement about his injury. And now Frazier wants to give credence to this Adam Eaton feud. That, to me, is not what leaders do. And listen, by all accounts, everybody's read the stuff out there about what happened in 2016. Number one, it was all stupid. And number two, Adam Eaton is being painted as a Looney Tune and uh, somebody who was completely in the wrong in this quote-unquote feud. Okay, fine. 
So if you're Todd Frazier, why are you even bothering yourself with a feud where you were clearly in the right and everybody back then was on your side? I mean, Eaton was was right when he said that Frazier was acting like an old an ex-girlfriend. You don't do that as a leader. If you wrestle with pigs, you both get dirty. And that's what Frazier's doing. And if you're being paid to be a leader, you can't do things like that. Yeah, you absolutely can't. And one last thing from Monday, the Yohannes Cespedes situation. I mean, my goodness. Now we find out that he literally stepped in a hole in his ranch, allegedly. We don't know for sure. He fractures his ankle. He's out. He's probably out for the year. They're not saying that yet. But in the words of the great Vince Lombardi. What the hell's going on out here? He said Keystone Cops at this franchise. If ever you turn around, something weird is going on with them. I mean, is he done? Is this his last game as a Met, you think, we saw already? Yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, it is his last game as a Met. And, I, I, listen, I'm going to say this. I love Cespedes. I don't think the Mets get to the World Series without him. I think without that trade, the Mets have, have 11 straight losing seasons under their belt instead of 25, 2015 and 2016 when they made the playoffs. I think that was Cespedes and only Cespedes. And I think that that was the trade that put them over the top, and I can't even blame them for making the signing after the 2016 season. Cespedes gave the Mets a hometown discount. I don't think he gets enough credit for it. I don't think Cespedes gets enough credit for what he's done for this franchise. Now, that said, I think this fall-in-a-hole story seems very suspicious. It was more vagaries, as you will, from Van Wagenen. I I have a feeling that something that when more comes out, and I don't know I don't know how you prove what Cespedes did. If he's on a ranch, there probably isn't, aren't any cameras there, so Cespedes can probably say what he wants about what happened, and nobody can really check him on. And I think it's going to be close to impossible. But yeah, certainly I think Cespedes is done for the season, and I think they're going to find some sort of way. Even if they can't void the contract, which I don't know really what kind of chance they have to do that, I think they're going to find a way to wheel his contract, the last year of his contract, somewhere else, probably to get another overpaid veteran uh, for five more years. Hopefully not. But, yeah, I, th- I think we've seen the last of Yoannis in New York. Yeah, that money's turned out to be a disaster for the Mets. And the, with the Mets, the money's everything, as we learned in these articles from Mark Carey, Jeff Pass, and Ken Rosenthal. Especially I saw that, like, We've learned that the well, Jeff Wilpon's still meddling. And apparently, one thing that's come out also is that like that the ownership would not let like Brody fire Callaway in the offseason because they didn't want to pay the two million dollars that's left on his contract. So the micromanaging, the cheapness, it never ends this team. Oh, and again, you know they, they uh, they've never been a franchise that would that want wants to pay a player for not playing. They never want to pay a manager for not managing. You know they've done this in the past. And the, the, the only, uh, I think the only reason they fired Willie Randolph in the middle of the season was because he lost the room. And it was a dire situation. And they had somebody ready-made on the bench who they were already paying anyway to, uh, to take over. And you saw what Jerry Manuel did with that team. He went 55-38, and 38, although I, I think with uh, the amount uh, of hate that Willie was getting in that room, I think you could have gone 55-38 and 38 with that team to end the season. So, yeah, it's never something the Mets would have done. It's, it's never been something in, the, in, their, in their history, so this isn't surprising. And they certainly wouldn't pay 
premium for a manager with a name brand to come in like Girardi or, or Buck Showalter or somebody like that. So if they're looking to make an in-season change, whoever they replace him with is going to be more of the same, and I don't think it's going to make a huge difference in that clubhouse. So I wouldn't expect a managerial change to rocket the Mets to the top. And that's why I say it's got to be the players. It's got to be the performance of the players to take this team and put them on a, on a winning streak that's going to put them in better standing. And they better do it soon because if they wait until they go out and uh, face the Dodgers and Diamondbacks, I think they're going to be screwed. Yeah, for sure. I mean, since they had that disastrous press conference Monday in the losing streak, they've won two in a row. So do you think the season is salvageable or do you think that this is one of those years where they're never going to be close to 500 again? I do think it's salvageable because it is early. And I think it's up, it's up to the players. The problem, and again, this is part of the conversation I had with Rich Sparago from uh, Metsian podcast uh, yesterday, is that he has this bad feeling, and I, I, it wouldn't surprise me, that because Callaway can't be fired, if Callaway is going to go through the rest of the season, I, he thinks that the Mets very well might just give up on this season in terms of making acquisitions, in terms of trying to improve the team to save this season. They might punt and wait for Callaway to be gone and then focus on 2020. And if that happens, if that's the case, then how can fans put up with that? Especially after years going back to 20. 20- 09 and 2010 when all the Mets were saying is, oh, well, you know, once we get through our financial situation, you know, we're looking at 2013 before we're going to contend. We're looking at 2016. We're looking at 2018. So just wait until then. They've made the fan base wait on so many seasons and basically throw away seasons so that they could get financially solvent again. And, And they haven't shown that they are yet. So now you're, they're going to say, oh, well, this season is toast. It's May 20th. We're, uh, we're just going to punt it away, and we'll do it next season. How many times can the Mets sell that to their fans? How many times can they say, hey, wait till next year, wait till next year? I guess they feel they can do it forever because they know that there is a certain portion of the fan base that will always come back because we're ride or die, and we're – going to be we're met fans until we're we die and they know this and they know they're going to sell the tickets anyway so what's the point of spending extra money on in-season acquisitions that's what scares me i hope that doesn't come to pass i hope there are resources that can be used to save this season but if the mets keep going the way they're going and even if they get back to 500 even if they improve a little bit it might be that the Mets punt on this season, and I'm I'm really worried about that, and I don't see how the fans put up with that. Yeah, fans will not be put up with that. I'll talk more about the, what the Mets should do going forward next week. John, thanks for all the time. Before I let you go, you want to let everybody know how to find on social media and some of the stuff you're up to? I am uh, on Metstradamus, uh, uh, at Metstradamus on Twitter. Uh, I do uh, – I have uh, the Burger Ball podcast. Uh, we're on Facebook, and we're on uh, – we're on uh, – Pippa, and we're on, um, we're on, we're not on Spotify yet, but we're on, uh, I forget what we're on, but if you look up the Burger Ball podcast, 
you'll find us. And next week, um, I will be teaming up with uh, Brian Jura for a brand new podcast, and I believe the working title is Amazing Mediocrity. So if you look that up uh, in a couple of weeks, you'll find us. So uh, that's uh, that's all the stuff I'm doing. But uh, I am uh, also on – but, again, I'm on Twitter. That's probably the easiest way to uh, get out there and yell at me and tell me I'm wrong and tell me I suck. So uh, – uh, at Metzdramus, please go and yell at me, and uh, please listen to all my stuff because I'm insecure and I need validation. All right, John. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Always a pleasure. All right, and that was John Coppinger from Metzdramus talking about the disaster as we come to New York Mets season. And we'll talk more Mets next week. Up next, we're going to lighten things up a little bit. We're going to do a summer movie preview with Jonathan Stanko right after this. All right, we are back on the Just End of Suffering podcast. Time to talk a little summer movies. And back by popular demand from the Avengers movie podcast, the, I would say, very popular Twitter film critic, John Stanko. John, <laughs> how you doing, welcome. Mike? How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Yeah, I'm very excited. Summer movie season is here. And for once, actually, a lot I want to see this year. Yeah, no, the, listen, summer movies is where all the blockbusters come out. And there's also some indie darlings in there, too, which I think always sneak in, uh, which surprise people. So, listen, it's the best time of year. Everyone enjoys, like, you know, those half-day Fridays, maybe, and then see a movie on a Friday night. There's nothing better. Oh, for sure. And, I mean, before we get started, we're going to talk about some of the movies that just came out recently. You saw one. I saw one I want to discuss. So, I'm going to play the little spoiler warning in case people have not seen a couple of these yet. All right, let's go to the movie you want to talk about first. John Wick Chapter 3. Give me your take. John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum, was phenomenal. It was an adrenaline-pumping, blood-driving, just eyes wide open the entire time. The set pieces are fantastic. Uh, Chad Stahelski, he's directed all three movies. This third one has by far the most action of the three. In terms of the set pieces and the stages that which they're set upon are unbelievable. The first 25 minutes, much like the John Wick, the first one in John Wick Chapter 2, first 25 minutes is just pure adrenaline. Just be like, oh, here's what you're in for. Boom. John Wick fighting on a horse with a ninja sword against people on motorcycles. That's what's happening in this movie. <laughs> and it's awesome. Um, I, I truly recommend it. Uh, and I think the best part of this is you knew you had like the people like uh, like Holly Berry joining in, Angelica Houston. But there was also, uh, I love the little spot stars, uh, Jer- uh, Jerome Flynn, who plays Braun in Game of Thrones. He appeared in it and was another um, kind of ex- exploration of the John Wick universe about how the gold coins are created. His character uh, is involved with that. And that's what makes John Wick 3 so good, Mike. This is what makes it so good, is that every single movie gives you a little bit more about the universe. Not too much, not too little, just enough to tease you, to make you want that next one. And they've already greenlit Chapter 4, Mike, for 2021, I can't not wait. That sounds great. I haven't had a chance to check those yet. Yet you got me inspired to start adding my Netflix queue and start watching them. You need to watch them. Yeah. Also, there was on on Apple. I know there was like a ten dollar feature. We can get the first one and the second one. This third one, I rank probably second. I gave John Wick Chapter Two. I think I gave that like an A. I gave I gave John Wick Chapter Three B plus, and I gave the first John Wick a B. Um, they're all great. It's awesome. Fantastic. 
everyone should go see this movie if you're a fan of action movies. And I think it's interesting you put the sequel as the best movie because usually it's not the case. Usually the original is considered the best one in most of these franchises. I, I would tend to, oh, but not all, not all the case. You look at Star Wars, the first original trilogy, Empire Strikes Back is the, is the best Star Wars movie of everyone that's been created. Yeah. The Godfather Part Two is better than the Godfather Part One. There are, there are instances where it happens. Now in action movies, it's usually not the case. Yeah. You get like the Death Wish 2 after the first Death Wish or you get the rebooted Death Wish, which is even worse than Death Wish 2. So there are different areas you can go in there but John Wick chapter 3 Parabellum prepare for war you better prepare yourself because this movie it takes you on a ride yeah for sure that sounds like fun I actually saw Detective Pikachu the other day so I now here's here's my question for you on that yes I was not a P I was not a Pokemon fan growing up yes. would I still enjoy this movie yes you actually would it's okay. actually, it's not, they do not beat you over the head with the Pokemon stuff which is nice it actually gives you a good story in this movie too it's like sort of like the story of like the main character is basically like He's investigating, like, his dad, like, dies in a car crashing in the movie. He goes to go basically settle his dad's affairs. He meets the Pikachu, who was his dad's Pokemon partner, and then they go on a mystery to figure out what his dad was into. And, like, it's a good story. It comes to terms about how, like, he had this bad relationship with his father, how he sort of comes to terms with it. It's, like, a good, like, human kind of story in there. It's not just, like, beat you over the head with, oh, Pokemon battle. Oh, evolution stuff like that. So, like, and Ryan Reynolds is obviously voicing he Pikachu. Was, he was great. Is he that. great? He was great in that. Who's uh, better? As uh, is it Bradley Cooper as Rocket Raccoon or is it Ryan Reynolds as Pikachu? I think it actually might be Ryan Reynolds. That's hey, listen, that's high praise. We know Ryan Reynolds has a taste for the comedy, so that was my biggest question for you. Is I was not a Pokemon fan fan growing up. I didn't collect the cards, so yeah. I, the yeah. movie looked better than I expected from the trailer. So now I'll go check it out. Yeah, I would go check it out. I recommend people like. In terms of bad, like it, I think it might be one of the better video game movies ever made, to be honest with you. Really? Okay. Yes. Listen, because most of those are really, really bad. Uh, they are really bad. I mean, I saw the trailer for Sonic the Hedgehog in that theater, and my God, how bad it looks. <laughs> they're, the fact that they're going to redo the CGI on Sonic the Hedgehog because so many people commented about how bad it was, that just shows you the lack of effort going into making this movie. Yeah, and Jim Carrey is Dr. Robotnik. He looks like a, like a literally like a cartoon character with a mustache. It's but like the so thing is, that character is supposed to be big. He's supposed to be fat. fat he's yes. supposed to be like a round oval egg you can roll around on the ground. And yeah. he's, he's a skinny twig in the trailer. I yeah. don't understand it. Yeah, I don't either. It looks and He, he was so bad in the trailer, too. Like, but the thing is, I think that's Jim Carrey just overacting to a T like he's done in so many movies before. Four. I think it's Jim Carrey being Jim Carrey. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Jim Carrey being Jim Carrey. So you kind of know what you signed up for there. Yeah. So I'm not going to that one. I'm going to put that out there. I'm not going. You're to not going to go. I, might I, go see, I was a Sonic kid too. I'm not going to go see that movie. It looks so horrendous. I might go see it to see how much of a train wreck it is. Like, like, sort of like if you go, go hate watch the Emoji Movie. Exactly. <laughs> hey, you hate watch the Emoji Movie on Netflix just to be like, wow, this movie got made and it made money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Sonic will make money, too, because there's enough kids who love the video games will go see now, it. Now, is it kids or is it people in, like, our age or, or older than us who play the game as a kid? Well, I mean, it goes cuts both ways. Remember last year they made a big deal about the Power Ranger movie two years ago, and that didn't really make that much money. To be fair, the Power Ranger movie, again, tad bit better than I expected. Yeah, that was what I said, too. I went in there, I'm, like, expecting it to be a complete dumpster fire. I'm like, oh, you know, this isn't too yeah. bad. They, like, it wasn't good, but it, it wasn't bad. I saw I, was, I saw potential. Yeah, I think I gave the movie, like, a C plus. I was like, this is slightly better than I thought, and I'll take it. Yeah, I remember I walk in there, I'm like, oh, if they actually you know, tweak things and made a sequel, it wouldn't be too terrible. I wouldn't actually wouldn't mind no, seeing that. I would watch that if it came on HBO now or something like that. I wouldn't say no. Yeah, for sure. Let's go to some of the movies that haven't come out yet, too. Let's go to Rocket Man, the Elton John biopic with Tara Edgerton playing the lead role. Do you think he'll be able to do the Elton John story justice? You, are you looking forward to seeing it? This, I think this movie has a lot, has a much brighter spotlight on it after the controversy that was around Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. I don't know your take on Bohemian Rhapsody. 
I myself thought it was very overrated. I still have not seen that yet. It's in my Netflix queue. So I gave that movie a C plus. And slight story here. My girlfriend it was a huge fan of Queen and a huge fan of Bohemian Rhapsody. She's like, you're going to love this movie. This movie is great. It's fantastic. I went to go see it, and I was like, Courtney, this is not a good movie. <laughs> this, is a, this is a bad movie. It's an entertaining movie, but it's a bad movie. It's the one topic that my girlfriend and I cannot talk about. We don't talk about it. It's off limits because we just fight and bicker about that it the one entire movie. time. That one movie. <laughs> um, so I think Rocket Man, getting back to Rocket Man, you're going to need to, they're going to really need to pull this off. And I have stock in Taron Edgerton ever since I saw him uh, in the first Kingsman. I'm like, this guy can be a star. Now, granted, he needs a hit after Robin Hood, which was really, really bad. But the fact he's he's actually sticking in this movie, he took in the effort to do it. He worked with he worked with Elton John to get that all done. And this is the first movie of a lot of movies this summer that are going to have music as a main center point of the movie. You have Aladdin, you have Lion King, you're going to have the movie Yesterday. These are there are a lot of summer movies that have music entwined to it. So while Bohemian Rhapsody was a movie about like the concert performances, this movie Rocket Man is kind of like where they're going to have scenes like 500 Days of Summer where just a musical ensemble is going to spring out of a scene and then there's going to be people dancing around him while the while the scene's happening. So I'm slightly excited for this movie because I like the music, I like Taron Edgerton, and I'm curious to see what the reception will be after the controversy that was around Bohemian Rhapsody. Is that why you're going to take Courtney to you go see that with her? Uh, you know what? Maybe I'll go take that see here. Maybe I'll see. Maybe I'll see if we can agree on a movie. Yeah. Um, let's just not. Let's just not fight like Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Don't bring Bohemian Rhapsody up when you go to the movie. She also loves Rami Malek, yeah. and, and Rami Malek was good in Bohemian Rhapsody. He was the best part. But the fact that he got all the all the awards in the award season, I, yeah. my mind was I was not happy. Yeah, we're in a Rami Malek world now. I mean, Mr. Robot's coming to an end this year, and now he's sort of I think he's kind of a big movie star after this. Well, he, listen, he's going to be the villain in the next James Bond movie, yeah. which I think is great. He can play a super creepy type of villain, and listen, they need a hit after Spectre was really, really bad. Yeah. So, listen, the last that's go round for for Daniel Craig, James Bond twenty five, Rami Malek the villain. Count me in. He's a good actor. Let's yeah. see if he can put it together. I remember Rami Malek back when he was on twenty four in season eight as like, as like a random like two episode villain. It's yeah. crazy how, how much his career was taken off since. Well, then. he's took off. I roll. Robot yeah. was really, really the yeah. turning point for him, and that Mr. that unique Mr. Robot, show. I mean, yeah, I a movie. I think Mr. Robot. Yes, you're right, Mr. Yeah. Robot. You're right. Yeah. I Robots with Will Smith. You're yeah. right. You're right. So Mr. Robot was was big for him. So we'll see what he, we'll see if he can take it to the silver screen. Yeah, for sure. Let's go to the blockbusters now. There's three I think that are interesting here: the Godzilla King of the Monsters, which that one's coming out soon; the Men in Black International with uh, Tessa Thompson and uh, Chris Hemsworth, and Hobbs and Shaw spinoff from the Fast and the Furious. Which one of these intrigues you the most? Let me say this first, is I am not excited for Men in Black International. I think this movie is going to be bad. The trailer was really bad. How many times can you have the joke of got in, inside the wrong side of the car in London, <laughs> in, in England or whatever? How many times can you have that joke? Um, I do not think the movie is going to be good. It's being directed by F. Gary Gray, who's known for lately the, the fate of the furious. So it has that type of fun vibe, maybe. Um, my personal favorite of his is the Italian job. Um, but... I don't think this movie is going to be good, even though it has the charisma of Hemsworth and Thompson, which were really good in Thor Ragnarok and the Marvel movies. I'm just not super confident about it. Yeah. I don't know about you. Yeah, like I saw the trailer. I was like, okay, I, I, I see what they're trying to do. They're basically trying to get the Thor Ragnarok vibe into Men in, Men in Black International. Yeah. And like, I don't know if it's going to land. No, the thing is Men in Black 3 took too much of a serious note and yeah. that movie kind of landed as a dud for me. Yeah. So maybe this can kind of be more of an uplifting sort of thing and they'll make it more enjoyable. But my, my optimism is not very high. Yeah. Um, the second one there, Godzilla, King of Monsters. Um, I'm tepidly excited for it because I really did did myself a disservice. I didn't see the first one in theaters 
and I only saw it on my TV at home. And I think if I saw it in theaters, I would have enjoyed it a lot more than I did. So I'm going to make a point to go see this one in the movie theater and see if it plays a big difference. Um, but, I mean, the cast is really good, but this is, all, this is all about the monsters and all about how they look and the action sequences and stuff like that and the massive destruction that's going to happen. So the trailers were great, Mike. The sound in the trailers was phenomenal. The score was great. Um, I'm typically excited for it. I'm going to go see it in theaters and definitely going to give it a shot. Yeah, what about the uh, Hobbs and Shaw movie? Hobbs and Shaw, just take my money. Yeah. You know that, Jeff, just take my money, yep. shaking the dollar signs? Yep. That's me with this movie. This movie is going to be a rop shot of insane stunt action. Suspend your disbelief. There's going to be cars flying in between helicopters. Yeah. Give me snarky Jason Statham with the charisma of The Rock. Mike, this movie's going to make a, billion, a bajillion dollars. Oh, I a believe. A bajillion dollars. I think this might be the number one movie of the summer, Hobbs and Shaw. In terms of money made, absolutely. This will be the major money winner of the season. For sure. And they have a lot of competition, too. I mean, this is, as Regal said the other day when I was watching the previews of Detective Pokemon, this is the summer of Disney because they have There's a lot. so many moneymakers coming out. We got Aladdin coming out this weekend and Toy Story 4 in June and The Lion King, the big heavyweight, the, mm-hmm. the live-action Lion King. I think everybody was waiting for it as soon as Beauty and the Beast became a massive hit. Like, which one do you think in just terms of being a movie will be the best movie? I think The Lion King will be the best movie, and it's the one I'm excited for 1,000%. The Lion King was my movie growing up. It was the movie that I put on when I was bored every single time, and I love the movie to death. Scar is my favorite Disney movie villain. By far, he's the most evil. Um, So, And John Favreau's at the helm of it doing this live adaption. He also did The Jungle Book, which was my other favorite live adaption that Disney's done thus far, so I really enjoyed that. And I just think the dynamic in this theater is going to be really funny because how many people are going to be our age who watched it as kids growing up watching out the live adaption? How many are going to actually be young kids like with their parents or whatever? So I'll be very curious to see that dynamic in the movie theater. But Lion King, super, super excited for it. Yeah, I'm pumped for that one. Toy Story 4, I'm kind of on the fence about because it's like, do we really need this story? Like like this this is one where it's just making the movie to make the money and like. I've, even the last trailer that came out yesterday, I'm like, I was not really super impressed with it. I'm with you. We've texted about this. The story just seems so redundant at yeah, this point. The yeah. trailers haven't inspired me. Now, granted, Pixar, Toy Story, none of the movies have been bad. Toy Story 3, at the end of it? Phenomenal. My, I was bawling my eyes out. I had that moment where I gave my toys away to somebody else. Yeah. And I just remember that moment, and it affected me. And I was like, oh, my God, this is emotional. There was a running joke in my family. I went and saw it with all my cousins yeah. who live in Connecticut with us. There was 10 of us. And my only, only one who didn't cry was my sister. Yeah. And so there's a running joke. She has no soul because she's yeah. the only one who didn't cry at the end yeah. of Toy Story 3. So, I, listen, you got to kind of trust Disney Pixar to make this a good movie because all the other ones have been good. But my expectations are not as high as they are for, for Lion King. Yeah, so I remember, like, I talked about this in the first trailer. I talked about it with Sam on the podcast a couple of weeks back. And, like, one thing we were curious about is, just, like, the fact they decided – I think they really made this movie to, A, I think bring Bo Peep back into the story because they – send her off screen in Toy Story 3 mm-hmm. and now she comes back and like she's dark and like Sam points out point out the last time he's like yeah this is like that's the one thing she's interested about because like sort of Bo has had this dark experience of, like what he did not have where like she gets given away she's wa- like basically a lost toy for all these years and doesn't have an owner and like Woody's had basically this charmed life where he has one owner that he basically like bumble F's his way into a second owner <laughs> yeah no listen I I think I think it's going to be good. I don't think it's going to be great because you can't match up to the first three. Like Toy Story three ended on such a perfect note. Yeah, it's really one of those movies where you watch it, you're like, I don't need another one. This is a perfect. Ending. No, exactly. Yeah. It's like don't ruin this with another one. Don't yeah. make a sequel. Now, granted, Tom Hanks said in stories that he read the script and made him cry while he was doing the voiceovers and stuff like that. It's, I'm going to see it without a doubt, probably on opening weekend. 
but I'm not excited for it as Lion King and some other movies this summer. All right, let's play a little game with these Disney movies. Let's, let's do a little uh, over under here. Before I do that, I got get us into the mood. Show me the money. Yeah, get in the mood a little bit. A little show me the money, a mini show me the money edition here. We're going to do a little over under on these three movies. So let's go to Aladdin first, which we did not really talk about. I'm saying an over under figure of about $400 million in sales. Do you think it beats that number? I think it'll beat that number because reviews for it coming out have been good thus far, yeah. which I think Disney really needs because Dumbo didn't land. No, Dumbo did not. did not make the money that it that expected to make. Um, and I mean, Tim Burton movies often they're a niche audience, and I guess it didn't hit the full niche that Disney wanted. So, but Aladdin, it's surprising people thus far. It's gotten over the controversy when they first showed the genie and Will Smith. Um, and I think the one thing about Aladdin, Mike, is you look at the trailers and you look at the director, Guy Ritchie, the colors in this movie pop. They do. The atmosphere pops, the environment pops, and you notice it right away. So even if the movie isn't necessarily great from a storytelling standpoint or from a dialogue standpoint, screenplay, it's going to look yeah. fantastic, which will help carry it to, to some big box office numbers. Yeah, I'm curious how, like, I think the Will Smith as a genie drew, drew big controversy. I think they also drew controversy for kind of whitewashing Jasmine with by casting. I think the Naomi Scott is playing Jasmine. Yeah, right? but... From what from what I've read, she's the best part of the movie. I buy it. She, from what I've read, she's yeah. the person who carries this movie, her singing performance, everything like that. She's yeah. the one who really sticks out. Okay, so you're, you're taking the over on. on I'm taking I'm, the over on that. Okay, let's go to Toy Story Four. I have an over under. Let's say seven hundred million. I'm gonna go under. Yeah, I'm gonna go under. I think Toy Story Three was such a hit, and I think Toy Story Three hit on the first nostalgia phase that people wanted. Nostalgia phase, excuse me, that people wanted, and everyone went out to go see it. I don't think this one, even though I think it's probably still probably going to be a good movie, it's not going to gather that same audience recognition of, I, I must go see this because it was part of my childhood sort of thing. I think they already tapped into that once and go into the well a second time. It'll still make a lot of money. It'll still make a profit for Disney, but not as much as people expect. Yeah, I'm going to go with the under as well. I think it's about six where I end up landing. I feel like Toy Story 3 just had been so long and people really wanted another one. The story looks so good. This one, I'm not saying the same level of hype for this one as there was for the previous edition. I think it'll be Aladdin, just because the name recognition is higher. Toy Story, Disney, Pixar, Animation. It'll make yeah. more money than Aladdin, but I agree with you. It's going to fall short of that $700 million. All right, and Lion King, last not least. The over-under, a billion dollars. I'm going over. Yeah. I'm going over. Yeah. This is Disney's treasure. It's considered one of their best animated movies. The cast is just unbelievable. They're bringing back people. They're bringing in fantastic talent. Count me in. I'm in on this movie opening weekend. I'm going to be singing along to all the songs. Yeah. And I, I guarantee you the soundtrack, too, once it comes out on Spotify with everything like that, the soundtrack's going to be streamed everywhere. This movie's going to make a billion dollars. It's going to be the most profitable Disney movie of the summer. I actually got a backtrack here. I think I'm going to say this is going to be make more money than Hopkins show. I think it just the, the whole family factor. I think it's going to people are going. Mm -hmm. I think people go back to see this several times. I think it's going to like how Beauty and the Beast. Everybody kept going again and again and again to see it. I'm going to respectfully disagree with you there. I still think Hobbs and Shaw is going to be the biggest money maker of the summer, possibly besides Spider-Man: Far From Home. Yeah, that's the caveat because Marvel movies just rake in money just by being there. And Spider-Man is the most, most popular movie. Exactly. Yeah. So that besides that one, but I do think Lion King. Will fall short of Hobson and Shaw, but it'll still make a ton of money. Okay, let's go to the superheroes, right, man? Let's go to the X Men: Dark Phoenix, the last movie of the first class saga, which has been hit or miss. I was the first class and was was good. Days of Future Past is great. Apocalypse stunk. It was bad. <laughs> it, it was, was bad. Re really bad. And now we get 
the last stand was basically basically uh, Dark Phoenix is basically retelling the last stand and redoing that abomination of a movie. So, how do you think they're going to wrap up the universe with this? You think it'll be a satisfying conclusion? No, and I'm really <laughs> sad about it, Mike. Uh, I grew up on the X-Men. The X-Men are my Avengers. Like, I always wish that what the Avengers are now, what Marvel did with them, they did with X-Men. I'd be so much more invested in it if, if that was the case, but there's just been too many low points in this franchise. Um, I don't think X-Men Last Stand was as bad as people say. I still enjoyed it as a movie, even though it didn't live up to expectations. This one I just think is going to be bad. Yeah. It, it stinks. Maybe Sophie Turner, the... I mean, she is over with everybody right now. Everyone loves Sophie Turner from Game of Thrones, her chugging wine at a Rangers game, just partying with the Jonas Brothers. She is over. So maybe she can carry this movie to some box office numbers. Um, They bring in Jessica Chastain, who I love and have a girl crush on. I think she's phenomenally phenomenally talented. But I just don't think this movie's going to be good. And I'm really upset about it. I think it's also by a first-time director. Yeah, Simon Kinberg. He's a first-time director. He's been producer for a ton of X-Men stuff, but he's a first-time director who's at the helm of this closing chapter of this phase of the X-Men universe before they eventually get crossed into the Marvel universe and the multiverse that's there. So I'm going to go see it because I'm a sucker for X-Men, but I, I can almost guarantee I'm going to walk out of the theater just shaking my head. Yeah, remember I went and saw Apocalypse. I was walked out. I was so disappointed. I'm like, this How is... do you waste Oscar Isaac, yeah. a phenomenal actor? You just put clay putty on his face so he can't show any expressions. How do you do that? I knew he was doomed when they showed the first preview picture where he looked like Ivan Ooze. And I'm like, how'd you script an iconic villain like that? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. You just hope it's tolerable. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping that it's tolerable. Yeah, and I mean, they they I mean they kind of they screwed up the Phoenix story on the first time in Last Stand. I feel like... The bar is low for that storyline, but I don't know if the rest of it will keep up. That's true. I mean, listen, this one takes it into the celestial, into the universe, whatever. We're like, it's more true to the graphic novel in that aspect. But again, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not confident, Mike, and I'm really upset about it, and I'm dejected. All right, let's go to Spider-Man: Far From Home, which is our first trip into the MCU after Endgame. The new trailer came out, I think, about like a week and a half after Endgame was released, so. Big spoilers there. Obviously, I'm going to play it again in case there are some of you who made 20 minutes of this without seeing Endgame yet. Yeah, you get a very brief spoiler warning because you should have seen this movie right now if you wanted to see mm-hmm. Endgame. But, like, we end up pick up in the universe where Tony Stark has made the sacrifice and now the world's trying to cope without it. And I remember when this first came out and they were saying, oh, you know, he's going on vacation. I'm like, eh, we really need this right after Endgame. But, like, the new trailer comes out and they reground the stakes and it's like, my goodness, like, what a landscape-shifting film for Marvel at this point. Yeah, I think they did exactly what they needed to, Mike. They went more to the absurd, if you will. They went grander scale with the multiverse, which is, I think, what they needed to do. Um, and this is honestly the perfect movie to start off with. They're trying to make Spider-Man the new Iron Man with yeah. the suit and then all the homages in the trailer. They blatantly are saying, are you the new Iron Man? Yeah. They're saying that in the trailer. And Iron Man obviously started off that previous phase of Marvel. And I, listen, this movie's going to be good. I loved Spider-Man Homecoming. It was one of my favorite Marvel movies from the past iteration. Um, loved every single second of it. And Tom Holland's fantastic in this part. So we'll see what happens. Mysterio, I'm excited to see what it looks like. I think Jake Gyllenhaal looks damn good in that suit. He's just a damn good-looking dude, and he's going to fit in that universe well. Um, and what makes Tom Holland and that Spider-Man so great is in his solo movie of Homecoming, it was about him as a character, him as a person, not necessarily about the suit. And I think they're staying true to that with him always saying he wants to go back to his friends. They're not going to focus on the suit like they did in Iron Man 2. They're going to stay on Tom Holland and Spider-Man, the character, which I think is going to make this movie decent. Yeah, and as far as the multiverse theory, I have a clip I pulled from the trailer that I think is really does a good job explaining like what sort of got me really hyped about this movie. So let's play a little bit of this trailer. This is Mr. Beck 
Who could have used someone like you on my world? New world? Beck is from Earth, just not ours. The snap to our hole in our dimension. You're saying there's a multiverse? We have a job to do, and you're coming with us. There's gotta be someone else you can use. What about Thor? Off-world. Captain Marvel. Unavailable. I'm just a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Bitch, please, you've been to space. <laughs> I love that line at the end there. No, you got you gotta love gotta love the snark. Yeah. And listen, that's the comedy that made that yeah. made Homecoming so good. It makes Marvel yeah. such a, a welcoming place for people coming into the universe. And this is a brand new start. How many people are going to go to this movie just to see the post credit scene, which you know it's is going to set up something yeah. long, long down the road. Yeah. Especially because the trot they're going back to only two movies next year, so yeah, I think I think it's good to take a break. Listen, yeah. they bombarded us for three straight years just with movie after movie after movie after yeah. movie. Give a little bit of rest. Make the people want it a little bit more before you bring it all back. Oh, for sure. So, I mean, I'm pumped for that. The multiverse will be fun because I want to see, like, I feel that's going to be how we get the X-Men in here is sort of through the multiverse. It's going to happen, and yeah. I'm, I'm going to be super stoked when it finally does happen. going to yeah. be beyond excited. Yeah. Um, but we'll have to wait and see. We we have to wait probably like two decades for when all these <laughs> movies come out and this next phase comes out because whatever Kevin Feige and Marvel have planned, it's going to be grandiose. It will be grandiose. So last thing, we talked about a bunch of movies already. What's mm-hmm. one that we have not hit yet that you think is going to be a sneaky hit this summer? Oh, I got a bunch for you. I got, I'll rattle a couple off quick. Okay. Uh, one comedy I'm excited for is a horror comedy, The Dead Won't Die, stars Bill Murray and Adam Driver. I just think that's going to be funny. The reviews are middling thus far, but I'm excited for it. It's my type of humor. Yesterday, which I mentioned earlier in the podcast, is a kind of a musical thing where somebody wakes up after a coma in a world where nobody remembers the Beatles, but he knows all the Beatles songs, so he becomes famous singing the Beatles songs. Yeah. I grew up on the Beatles. I'm excited for it. The trailer blew me away. The, and you listen to that log line. You're like, yeah. this movie sounds weird, yeah. but the trailer was great. Um, Booksmart is a, is a comedy that just came out, I think. has been known as the indie super bad with yeah. some of the uh, critics that I read. They really, really like that movie. Opened up with 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. You have Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in, to- Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, you got Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie. Sign me up. Take my money. But the one movie, Mike, there's one movie that I am beyond excited for, and it's called Midsummer. Yeah. Have you heard Have you heard about Midsummer? No, I have not. It's directed by Ari Aster, who directed one of my favorite horror movies of all time last year, Hereditary. I don't know if you're a horror movie fan or if you saw Hereditary, but that movie was creepy as hell. The atmosphere created. Toni Collette should have been nominated for an Oscar for her performance, and he's coming back with another horror movie this summer. The colors are bright. Everyone looks happy in the trailer, but you know that there's an eerie creepiness in it, and I can't not wait for this movie. The trailer is so vague. It just gives you little glimpses about what may happen, but you have no idea what the plot's going to be. Everyone should go see Midsummer if you want a good summer scare because Ari Aster is a master at the craft. This is my, my favorite movie of the summer that I'm most looking forward to see is Midsummer. Absolutely. That sounds like a lot of fun. John, thanks for all the time today. I really appreciate it. Mike, thank you for having me. I'll always talk movies whenever you need. All right. Before I let you go, I'll let people know how to find on social media for some more of your movie hot takes. Uh, follow me on Twitter at jstanko99. That's on all my social media platforms. Um, yeah, I'll be busy during the summer watching a lot of movies. So, Mike, looking forward to talking to you. Absolutely. I'll, I'll, talk, I'll see some movies myself. Maybe later this summer we get back together and talk about some of the ones we've seen. Counting on it. And that's going to do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Veronica Bruno, for coming on to talk about the French Open and preview that event. I also want to thank Jonathan Stanko for popping in to do a summer movie preview. That was a lot of fun. I also want to thank John Coppinger for calling in to talk about the latest disaster befalling the Mets and that whole mess in Flushing. 
If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including my full look at how the NBA lottery results affect the New York Knicks rebuilding plan, check out the blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Go ahead there. Just search for Just and the Suffering. You can find all the old episodes there. Subscribe. Get all the new ones as they come out. A lot of fun there. Also, be sure to leave your feedback and star ratings in order to help make this show even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet me with the hashtag BadOwners. We made it at the end of this week's show. That was certainly a topic this week with the Johnson brothers, the Will Ponds. We all know James Dolan is bad, but certainly bad owners, a recurring issue for this New York sports community. Next week, our 50th episode of the podcast. Got a lot of fun stuff planned. We're going to preview the NBA Finals, talk some more Mets, some more good stuff. I want to, I'm not working on, I'm not going to get into any more specifics. I'll leave that as a tease. Until then, I'll be a better week than Jet fans. Yeah.